everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone. As usual, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. So far, everything is going okay with me. My aunt visited Zuhoi this past weekend, and she stayed with me a few days, and we also did a day trip to Guangzhou, where we visited a few locations that my family had lived in a long time ago. I had been there before with my cousin, although my cousin didn't have all the specific details, so it was really nice to hear from my aunt all these histories that I didn't know about. As a result of this visit, I have some new ideas jumping around in my head, and maybe I'll start something new soon. I'll keep you updated about that. But for today's episode, I am chatting with Jeffrey Augustine Sanko, a multidisciplinary artist exploring the complexity of self-portraiture. As a gay American man of Filipino ethnicity, Jeffrey's work is a place of representation, an opportunity to playfully cast himself as the protagonist of a post-colonial queer narrative. Jeffrey got his BFA from Carnegie Mellon University and his MFA from the San Francisco Art Institute. While our paths did not cross in Pittsburgh due to the different years we attended, we connected in other ways and there was a shared sense of familiarity as I talked with Jeffrey. Jeffrey also revealed our hidden connection via reading Rainbow, which was a pleasant surprise. We also discussed Jeffrey's beginnings as a child actor, the creation of a secret society, and how he ended up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Yeah, my people called your people, and uh, or your here people we are called connecting. Me. I don't have any people. <laughs> <laughs> I just started having people, so it's an experiment for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still haven't figured out if I need people or not, but, um, yeah, so I guess, um, you know, um, I'm just curious, how's your day been right now? It's 10 AM, right? Yeah. So, um, my ritual is waking up and walking the dog. Oh, what kind of dog do you have? Uh, he's a pit bull lab mix. Okay. Um, my partner uh-huh. and I got him, uh, summer of 2019. So we've had him for almost, for about a year and a half. Mm. He's turning two this month. His name is Melon with two L's after Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> um, and so I walk the dog and then my partner and I um, kind of get up around like 8, 8.30. And then um, we have our coffee in the morning and then he goes to the studio. He's a potter. Um, so he gets his, his lunch ready and um, all that. But I kind of like roam around the house I trying to wake up. I have a lot of anxiety, so I try to figure out how to feed it a little bit, but then also get out of my head uh, in the morning before I start whatever work I'm doing. Texting a friend here or there, um, just checking in on them. I kind of like getting out of my head by seeing how other people (laughs) are doing. Um, A little bit of that extrovert in me. And then... I was writing a couple notes on what I was going to do today. Um, I'm in the middle of my remote residency with the mattress factory right now. So uh, you need to figure out a game plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, the early morning, you know, it's also a new year. And I think jumping into 
yeah. a residency on the first of January was very. Um, Wait, they 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 started on January first. Your residency started. I started January. it on. Yeah, oh, okay. I I made it. I made it a thing to to start like in okay. January and have yeah. January first through thirty first yeah. as my as my residency period. Yeah. So I did start on uh, yeah Friday or Saturday of last week. Yeah. I've well, I have like so many questions. Um, I actually, you know, usually when I interview people, I'm really nervous, especially people I have no idea. But for you, I felt like, well, I have a lot of things that I think I wanted to eventually jump into. But first, I don't know if you know that I also went to Carnegie Mellon. I do know. <laughs> yeah, so I went there for grad school. So we miss each other by a few years. So I know the mattress yeah. factory, um, and so like I'm really excited that you're doing a remote residency at the mattress factory. I wanted to talk to you about that, but before we get into that, um, I was also was going through your website. And I really liked your short and dry bio, and then your long <laughs> and romantic bio. Oh, thank <laughs> but, you. But I, so I got I got a whole bunch of um, stuff from that. But yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to know more about you know you growing up in New Jersey, and yeah, and how did you end up get into art? Yeah. Um, so just before I go into that, I wanted to mention uh, in your episode with Justin Favela. Yeah. You did men. You both were talking as podcasters, like about interviews. Yeah. And I appreciate that you said that. You know, just now, like this is going to be a fun conversation because I appreciate how you said in that episode that you wanted to just kind of practice talking with other creative producers. You know, like you want to, and you have that pleasure of just talking. And I feel like that's what I like as well. Mm-hmm. And when I do interviews, sometimes it gets pretty dry and maybe as I answer this question now about growing up it might be a little robotic um because I've done it I've said it so many times but yeah I'm just excited to share that experience with you here of just like talking about stuff for me at least I find that the history of an artist is um one of significance and importance that I think a lot of art historians and critics like to you know, see art as this purely formal aspect that is devoid of the person or reading the art, uh, you know, via via death of the artist and all that philosophical text have been going on forever. But I, I find that the bio is, to me, really important. So that's what, sort of where I always start. And then I always see that as a foundation to everything else that is built upon. Yeah, I'm definitely the artist who, if you don't ask me about my bio, I will somehow pull it. <laughs> out because I do think like you just said it's definitely about my work is about my history and so I think it's important that for whatever reason you know that I was born in New Jersey and not the Philippines or something like that Mm -hmm. right I feel as an artist who does work about my own identity that bio is just as an important material as whatever physical objects I'm using but I guess I can go into the bio yeah let's do it (laughs) Okay. I was born and raised in New Jersey. My parents were born in the Philippines and immigrated here in the 70s. Um, I have an older sister who was born in New Jersey. And then I was born in New Jersey as well. And I lived in the same house forever. Do you speak Tagalog? I don't speak it. I understand it. Okay. My parents never taught me but they would speak at me yeah. and I understood it <laughs> fluently, if you will. I never read I'm the same with Chinese until recently. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you choose to learn it? Yeah. Well, I mean, more? I, my, my, my choice to go to China, uh, I mean, when I took this job, I was like, I need to learn Chinese. So 
I'm actively okay. learning it. It's still my Chinese is still complete shit, but uh, yeah. yeah, just yeah, it's, it's. I always say learning a language is sort of like slamming your head against the wall over and over and oh. over again. But and I'm still learning English, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm also still learning English. I always tell my students that I'm like, hey, I'm still learning English. Don't be, you know, don't get too worried. But my dad is also like, you know. You know, immigrants don't have a choice. Whether no matter like how hard a language is, you just have to learn it. So we have that pleasure to be like, yeah, we speak English, and then we can slowly diddly dally our way to learning another language. Right. Yeah. Even in public school, growing up, I chose to take French. Like of all like the language, I guess、yeah. we only could take French or Spanish. Yeah, but yeah. literally in the home, there was there were two people who could speak another language, and I just chose <laughs> not to want to participate. Yeah,、um, but I would tell people that, like, for example, if it was dinner time, my parents would say in Tagalog it's dinner time, yeah, and yeah, I knew yeah, that yeah. you know I would <laughs> come downstairs and eat, but like、yeah. I never, I guess I just never understood it,、yeah. or I never learned how to speak it. And it's interesting today. I'm really obsessed with beauty pageants and the Philippines. The Philippines is、um, a major country in the Miss Universe pageant, so、okay. I have been. Watching a lot of YouTube videos in Tagalog,、okay. um, and it helps with listening and trying yeah, to understand.、Yeah. Like even because my parents are older than I guess your typical age gap.、Um, I think my mom was around forty when she had me. So you know there was a even just that generational gap in what they were saying to me wasn't like the hip kid cool yeah, lingo, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. now when I'm trying to listen to YouTube videos. In Tagalog, don't know a lot of the、uh, a lot of the lingo, so I、mm-hmm. try to like figure out contextually what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, fun little thing to do before bed. But、um, let's see, in New Jersey, I did a lot of dance. My sister、uh, went to ballet school at New Jersey School of Ballet, and I ended up going as well. And apparently, it's a it's a pretty common thing for brothers to join their sisters. At、really? dance, and then all of a sudden, that's how. Yeah, that's how they like get into the system. Because、uh-huh. I think, especially in America, it's just like not masculine to dance. As a kid, you should be. As a boy, you should be playing sports,、um, yeah. which I did. I played soccer and tennis, but you know, you're not supposed to do any dance, especially ballet. Yeah. So I I started dancing when I was about six, five or six, and then. I stayed in the system, and in America, when a boy does join dance, it's like that company, that school will keep you in there and、um, just hope that you stay for a while. So I danced all the way through, like the middle of high school.、Um, Did you think you could be a dancer? Yeah, I thought I was going to be a dancer.、Um, actually, I thought I was going to be an actor. I was a child actor for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, I was, I, I mean, I, I guess we have a slight link because I was sort, I was like a one, one day child actor for Reading Rainbow. I saw that video online. I saw、um, an artist talk you gave. Yeah, I thought、yeah. that was beautiful that you started by saying the same, you know, what monologue, if you will, the same. I just found、script. out that video was online. Actually, my students looked me up, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, we saw that entire、oh, thing." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> it was beautiful." I mean, I got the, I got. Chills watching you do that. I thought it was because I love that stuff. I love history. I love my personal identity. Like what you did there was just—it was brilliant. I wish I could have been in the audience、oh, to see it live.、Um, my connection to reading Rainbow actually is the first musical. Okay, so I'll get to it in a moment. Like、yeah. 
because of being in ballet, yeah. um, every company, every school does the Nutcracker every winter, Christmas yeah. season. It's like mm-hmm. a huge marketing tool. Yeah. Um, and so I was a boy in the Nutcracker at Paper Mill Playhouse, which is the State Theater of New Jersey. And they do it every year. The casting director at theater saw me in the Nutcracker and they were casting South Pacific, um, a Rogers and Hammerstein musical. Uh-huh. Um, and they needed a little boy in it. There's a little boy and a little girl. I auditioned. It was my first time auditioning for something and I got it. Um, and because of the proximity of Paper Mill Playhouse to New York City, Paper Mill Playhouse is in New Jersey, because mm-hmm. of its proximity to New York, a lot of the actors from New York come and perform in these musicals. So it's mm-hmm. like off, off Broadway, right? But that <laughs> launched me into performing musical theater stuff. Yeah. In that musical, South Pacific, Bloody Mary who is like the token person of color who sings like Valley High, which is this like sweeping, beautiful okay. song. T- was Tina Fabrique, who is the singing voice of the theme song for Reading Rainbow. Oh, really? I <laughs> so love that theme connection. song. I did not know that. Butterflies in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so um, did they cast you for that? Where were you living at the time? Like, so where was, was that? So I grew up, I was born in Long Beach, California, but then six months old, my parents moved to New York City. So I grew up up in 63rd in York. Um, Okay. So, yeah, so I went to, I went to um, Hunter Elementary School, which was a relatively diverse school. So during our um, picture day, they just picked, they just like, yeah, they went there and someone picked, you know, all the different kids of different genders and races. Fascinating. Yeah, there's... um... The Milburn Public Library, which is, um, Milburn is the town where um, Paper Mill Playhouse is in, which is yeah, right yeah. next to where I grew up in Livingston. They have a pretty cool staircase in the library. And there was a couple episodes of Reading Rainbow that were shot in that area, like uh, on that staircase. So to me, Reading Rainbow was always just like East Coast thing, which uh-huh. is why I was wondering, like, where were you that you did this recording? But yeah, New York, yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, after 13, I went to New Hampshire, so yeah, but, and then okay. my mom tells me this, she told me they called, <laughs> they called me because they wanted to ask if I wanted to do it again, and I said no, because it was, like, really boring, right, like, actually, at that age, school's fun, right, you go to school, you, you, you don't really have homework, and the whole process for me was, like, I go there at eight, and then, and then like, I sit there, wait a few hours, they, I read a book, wait a few hours. They ask me what it's about. Then they like write a script for me, wait a few hours, practice a script. Just for this like, you know, 30 second moment, it was like the whole day from eight to three. And I was just sitting there all day and it was really boring. And so that's, that's what went in my mind when I was like, nope, I don't want to do this again. That is fascinating. I love the behind the scenes production stuff. And I have not learned what a confessional in No Reading Rainbow <laughs> <laughs> production yeah. is so i'm very excited to hear all of that information yeah yeah um uh anyway so then yeah i i um was in pacific which was eight weeks of production and you know i'm in fifth grade and i'm doing eight shows a week i'm leaving school early um and South Pacific is work, a group. You? No, you don't have to do homework at that point, right? Yeah, you know, that. I think that's the thing about child performers is that there's like, like this strange balance that you do with your obligations as a child student um, with essentially work, 
which I got paid. I think I was getting like $800 a week or something. Like it was nuts at 10 years old. And you got um, all of it? Your mom, your mom or dad didn't take it away? They store it or save it? Yeah, I think I got all of it. I don't know where it went. I got the paycheck like in hand and I would like leave the theater every week with a paycheck, but I don't know where it went. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, you see, um, you see these dancers on, you know, reality shows like Dance Moms or something. It's like yeah, those yeah. kids, it's hard. It's hard when you have to go to school and yeah. like sit there and listen to history or math or yeah, yeah. verbal comprehension. I mean, like any school sucks already to have a passion outside of school yeah that is like performing you get all this attention yeah, and then yeah, all of a sudden yeah. you're like back to waking up at yeah 6 30 to just get like to school another person doing something you don't you're just do. another person so i think i think there's definitely like a cliche or something just where a child actor has like a different experience of of our american upbringing and which is going to school participating in sports and then going home so yeah i was you know it was i i did work i was still fine in school but i got the performing bug and so i was in like school musicals and then i was in a couple other musicals um in high school uh at paper mill playhouse so again more performing you know i would go to my public school and then I would go to the theater and act and dance and sing and it was super fun but you know I was it was clear that as a person who looks Asian that I am not going to get very many parts yeah right like I already knew that at like 12 like there's nothing out there for me um that's crazy that's crazy to even think about actually you know to to comprehend that yeah, yeah, to understand yeah. your opportunities yeah, as like yeah. a tween <laughs> yeah i didn't realize that until i was like 25 when i was living in la and seeing all these actors and i was like thank god i don't have to take a snapshot of my face right right um and there's only you know x amount of roles and south pacific was definitely like the introduction for an Asian child yeah. in musical theater. It's like, you get to play this role. And then when you grow up, you will be in this musical or this musical. So it's exciting when you see, for example, something like Hamilton come out Yeah, yeah. and every person of color is like, yes, we yeah. can get more roles. Have you seen it? Um, no, I saw I... the Disney version or the Disney recording. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you see it? No, I haven't. I haven't seen either. No, I think it was like I really, I was really excited to see it, and then like every time I visit New York, I did like the the lottery ticket thing to try to get like cheap tickets, <laughs> and then like after some time, it kind of became so old I forgot about it, and then by the time it came on Disney, I'm like, I don't know if I want to sign up for Disney, and yeah, so right. Yeah. I think we got an iPhone or some someone in our household got a new iPhone. And so uh, we got free <laughs> Disney Plus with it or Verizon specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I guess, um, you know, I stopped. I also, here's a crazy thing. I also realized, like, I'm going to be short. I'm 5'4". Mm -hmm. My voice drops in the middle of middle school. Yeah. Like, I do not look the part. I can't even play an Asian character correctly. So I was also loving art here's my art background. I love, I had a computer in my room and my dad's an architect. So he's been, he's always the creative person on a computer, but I would like dabble in Corel draw, which mm -hmm. is like an early graphics program. Yep. I had it. Um, I had it on my, on you my, had Corel draw. Well, I had, <laughs> I didn't use it that much, but I, my, I think my dad had it on his PC, but yeah. yeah. So, 
yeah, I loved, I loved making posters. There was always a competition in town. It was like, design this logo or like submit your designs for this. So even in middle school, I was like on the yearbook committee and I made the cover for our yearbook, you know, things like that. And so because I knew my opportunities were limited as a child actor, I went into the visual arts um, in the middle of high school. I knew that I was going to not pursue performance. I also played the viola. I was in orchestra, you know, like I did all of this performing arts stuff. I was very creative and my parents were very supportive. Yeah, that's great. Um, I was very busy. And your mom, what does she do? Uh, She's a dietitian. Okay. So she was like the food person and my dad was like the models person, blueprints. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in the middle of high school, I started focusing more on art and taking art classes. I was an AP art, you know, like whatever the public school system could offer, I like took it. And the summer between junior and senior year of high school, I got into the Cooper Union summer program, which was crazy because they didn't take New Jersey kids. It was, it should have been New York city kids. And they were like, and I got in and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to have to commute, you know, 40 minutes on a bus every day. So I did it and it was great and interesting. And like, I thought I was going to go to Cooper union. I was like, I'm going to Cooper union. This is it. I'm going to live in New York city for the rest of my life. This is awesome. I'm going to be a New York city artist. I didn't get in. I didn't get in early decision. I didn't get in. And I was like super upset. Really? Um, you did, you but, did, the, you did yeah. the 10 assignments, right? I, I, I looked, I, I, looked I saw, I saw those 10 assignments. I was like, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> my, in my graduating class, in my um, high school graduating class, there were like a couple other awesome drawers, right? Yeah, Everything yeah. was about drawing. Like how yeah, well yeah, could yeah, you render yeah, this yeah, bicycle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or so, the or the orange and and the orange or the peel, orange. Right? I forget something. Even yes, yes, that was. Oh my gosh, I'm getting like I'm getting <laughs> hot right now thinking PTSD. about it. <laughs> PTSD. Um, yeah, it was a terrible. It was a terrible application. Um, but yeah, I just didn't get in. I was like super bummed because I thought yeah. New York City was going to be like the thing for me. Yeah, the place. Um, the place, and then but I applied to two other schools, Carnegie Mellon and WashU. Washington University in St. Louis, all for art. And I didn't get into WashU. And then I got a big, heavy letter from Carnegie Mellon. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Um, I didn't know anything about Carnegie Mellon. Literally a girl in my science class was like, hey, I'm applying to Carnegie Mellon for engineering. They have an art program. You You should look into it. So I applied. She got in for engineering and I got in for art. And I was like, wow, that's cool. But I didn't know anything about about the art program. In fact, the other caveat is I applied for the School of Design. Mm. It was my order for Carnegie Mellon was design, architecture, art. Uh-huh. Um, but based on my portfolio, they put me into art. Uh-huh. And I remember my interview with Carnegie Mellon. They were like, yeah. "Why do you want to be in the School of Design?" And I was uh-huh. like, "Because I want to have a poster in the middle of Times Square." Okay. So and they thought that, that was too artsy. No, I think just my um, portfolio, if I had to look back as, you know, if I had to be on the selection committee, I would probably think that there wasn't enough evidence of like a message, like a specific message within the, within my portfolio. It was really just this kid likes to use pencils and charcoal 
yeah. and it's a lot of self portraits. <laughs> <laughs> it has things um, haven't changed since then, right? <laughs> things literally have not changed, <laughs> and now I'm not using pencil. I'm just using uh, my iPhone to <laughs> to take selfies. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I got into Carnegie Mellon and went there, and then lived in Pittsburgh and. Here we are. You know what's funny? I, I when I when I applied to Carnegie <laughs> Mellon, I also didn't know anything about it. Did was, you apply for like the? Well, you applied for grad school, obviously, but did you know you would go? Were you already in your kind of video no trajectory, no, I, or were I, you, you I, still painting? I was. I well, I so like for me, I painted all the way through through undergrad. I went to Cornell, and then when I yeah. left, I was disillusioned with painting. I was sort of like I like. Took a two-year break. I uh, I taught in Korea for two years, and I did web development for two years in LA. And then after that, I felt like I was ready to like do new art. So I did like sculpture and mm-hmm. some tech stuff, like Arduino's processing. So I, I got into Carnegie Mellon for that, you know, as as like uh, Carnegie Mellon is all about tech. And then uh, it wasn't until I got yeah. into Carnegie Mellon that I started doing my videos. Got it. Got yeah. it. And Carnegie Mellon had like a late deadline for grad school, so I had actually like. Applied to all my schools. I think most of them was January 10th. And Carnegie Mellon, was, for some reason, was like 28th. And I was like, theirs was like the same same application, except they required an additional essay. And I remember feeling really lazy. And I was like, cool. I was like, I don't know if I want to do it. And then I eventually just like, over those like 18 days, wrote the essay, submitted it. And then, and then like, yeah, just fate would have it. I got there and I'm really happy that I got in. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you wrote it like the night before. 18 days. That's amazing. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, it took, I was like, you know, when I, when you really don't want to do something, it just like takes forever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like, but yeah, I got in and then I was like, what is Pittsburgh? That was my first, like, where, where, yeah. where is Pittsburgh? What's there? I don't, I don't know anything about it. I visited it and then, and yeah, and then I kind of fell. I fell in love with the city when I visited. It was like the first time that happened, where like you, I landed, I met the people, I went to school, and I just felt something about that city. Where did you live while you were there? Um, I lived on Gold Way. Do you know you, you know John Beckley and Carol? Yeah, Carol Kamara. So they owned yeah. a house on Gold Way. For, where is that? Sorry, I don't know what neighborhood that's um, in. Um, that's it's right. By like I guess technically Shady Side, um, Edge of Shady Side okay. and Friendship. Cool. Yeah. I had Carol for a sculpture class. I think yeah. all undergrads did, but like yeah. a yeah. small metals class or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, you went when did you go to when did you go to Carnegie Mellon? Two thousand one to two thousand five. Literally twenty years ago. Yeah. Um and I loved it. I mean, it was, it's a beautiful campus with like it has a college feel, which I like versus something, for example, like San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah. You know, it's like one one building and that's yeah, where yeah, I went yeah. for grad school. It's like one building here and then one building across town. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so how's your how's your experience at being forced to switch from design to art at Carnegie Mellon and it was yeah, it was hard. I was very grumpy <laughs> first year. <laughs> I think it was what's interesting to talk to other people who have a college experience where there is a, a major athletics program. You don't declare yeah. your major until junior year or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to think that, oh, I went to this very you know small university where I already knew what I wanted to do when I got in. Like my major was declared, but it wasn't the right major, right? I wanted to be a design major, not an art major. So I was pretty grumpy the first year. And I even wanted to um, 
where I took some design classes and then I wanted to transfer to design, but, you know, based on all the requirements, I would have had to repeat freshman yeah. year. Yeah. So I chose not to, and I just stayed in the school of art, but also, uh, I joined a fraternity, which was kind of game changing for me because, you know, as a little, as a little kid being a minority, knowing I was gay, but not coming out, you yeah. know, like to join a fraternity, which is like this, this symbol of masculinity. Was this, was this, <laughs> was this joining sort of like proof that to yourself or to maybe to the world that you weren't gay? Is it, was that yes. sort of why? Okay. Yes. That I wasn't gay, that I was, that I could be popular, like yeah. every cliche in a TV show in Dawson's Creek or whatever <laughs> I was watching in high school, like, I was like, haha, I can do this American, I can do the American dream just like any other white guy can. And so I joined a fraternity freshman year and it was life-changing. I got in, I got into a school I didn't know anything about and got into a fraternity. (laughs) I had no idea was accepting people, but you know, at Carnegie Mellon, it's a different, it's a really different kind of demographic and population. Um, you know, it's, a lot of nerds. Let's just yeah. say that it's a lot of nerds at the school. Yeah. Um, everyone's very passionate about what they do, yeah. and fraternities are not the typical kind of Southern college place where you have to be a jerk <laughs> or you know have this lineage of men in your family who have gone through the system. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just. I like to say that 20% of Carnegie Mellon's student population is social. And then 80% of that social population is in the Greek system. 80%? I like to say that. Oh, wow. I don't know if these are real facts. Well, this is funny. fake well, news. I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that Greek life has such a huge impact on CMU. But also, like, it's funny, as a grad student, I was completely divorced from the social life of Carnegie Mellon, right? Like, I was sort of in my own world. Right. I left campus all the time. I lived off campus. And like, but yeah, I didn't, I don't, yeah, I don't know much too much about the, um, the Greek life at CMU. Did you, what, so yeah, did you learn anything from joining? Did you enjoy it? What was that whole process like? Yeah. I mean, my quote of quotes is that, uh, the gayest place in the world is a fraternity, right? It's just like a lot of dudes, like (laughs) in one space. Um, (laughs) I actually didn't live, I didn't live in the house. I was an off-campus brother. Okay. Or out of house brother. I lived in like Squirrel <laughs> Hill and Shady Side. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But talk about balancing again. I was trying to balance the kind of closeness of the School of Art students. And then my other identity is, you know, a fraternity brother. Yeah. Um, and there were, a, there were a handful yeah, of yeah. art students in my class who were also in the Greek system. Huh. But, you know, it's hard when you have such a close, when you're in a, in a class, a the art class was, you know, its own thing. Yeah. So to join something outside of that, that was hard. And then to be in a fraternity where a lot of the fraternity brothers, uh, you know, were engineers or, you know, not in art. Like that was, that was hard for me to be like socializing with the yeah. art kids yeah. when I should be, you know, staying yeah. sheltering in place with these yeah, bros. Yeah. So, I mean, I learned that I learned that I could pass, you know, I could pass as, straight I could pass as white I could just you know blend in I was also taking a social psychology class in school and one thing that stuck with me to this day is just the idea of in-group and out-group okay um so on the quad on the fraternity quad yeah you know 
there's all these fraternity houses. Uh-huh. If you're in a fraternity, you think that you're all different. Mm-hmm. But if you literally stand on like the porch and you look across the way to that other fraternity and you see everyone else with their, you know, popped collars, yeah. you know, and their sunglasses, you're like, yeah. wow, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. So that has really stuck with me, especially in my work, when I think about groups, when I think about my own fictional brotherhood and creating my own identities within it, but then also knowing from the outside that people are looking in to my group and being like, wow, they're all the same. And that parallels, you know, being Asian American and how groups see see us see asian americans that that are all the same or Mm -hmm. you watch a tv show and there's some stereotypes that come up Mm -hmm. um so i was able to reflect a lot on that while also heavily heavily being closeted which yes i could pass but it took a lot of work i was depressed you know i was really sad about it all um did you come out then in college or after college no, I didn't come out. I, I came out right after college, actually. Um, so I graduated in 2005, but I stayed in Pittsburgh for an extra year because okay. um, I loved it so much. But I also didn't know what I was doing after school. And a lot of my fraternity brothers were actually taking fifth years for undergrads. So I ended up living in a house uh, with some fraternity brothers after college. Nice. And yeah, so I came out that winter Okay. Um, after college and everyone was like, yeah, we knew. So while I say that <laughs> I could pass, yeah, yeah. Um, I think people were just kind of respecting my privacy, yeah. which is yeah. crazy to think because also 20 years ago, you know, the rhetoric, the every, the way that people were talking, boys yeah, were talking yeah. back then was mm-hmm. really bad. Yeah. You know, a lot of just like a lot of really rude and appropriate language which I didn't participate in, participate in, but I did just kind of observe. And I participated in my own way of homophobia by, you know, hating myself. So to see, to see how our friendships have still grown 20 years later and to see how my fraternity brothers today are like anti that is very cool. You know, like, yes, everyone, it's kind of, you know, it reminds me of when like celebrities get like the, the public reveals like very terrible tweets of celebrities 20 years ago. Yeah. Exactly that. So it's hard because I'm like, yeah, that person's canceled, but also they could grow. So I have my own personal experiences with with individuals who act like that, have acted like that. Yeah. It's difficult. But it's also, yeah, it's amazing that that things are changing and we still have a long way to go as recent events have shown us. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I guess speaking of like, you know, fraternities, I know you have this amazing project, I think that's still going on, Society 23, right? That I think is, it seems to be um, drawing most of his inspiration from your time in, in the fraternity. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that and the inception of it. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure when it started officially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about it. And if you could tell me and also the audience more about it. Yeah, Um so in undergrad, um, around 2003, you know, I was focusing on printmaking. Ayana Moore. Um, I love Ayana. She's in Chicago. She's, she's in Chicago right now, I think. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I had an opening in Chicago uh, last March and she came to it. It was awesome. It was oh, really yeah. good to see her. But yeah, so I um, started playing around with digital photography and obviously I was photographing myself and then I love Photoshop, so I was starting to manipulate the photos to multiply myself. And, you know, this 
this checked off all the boxes. I was performing. I was performing for the camera. And then I was um, changing costumes and I got to act silly. <laughs> and then my friend, a classmate was like, oh, you should make a secret brotherhood. Oh, you should start naming them. So I started <laughs> being interested in that, right? I started like focusing on that. Um, yeah. It wasn't a uh, an official brotherhood yet, but I started like thinking more about these characters. And so actually for my undergrad thesis exhibition, I took these, I took these five photographs that was, a, that would be a series, a sequence of these five images in a row at the Miller Gallery at the time. I think now it's like the Miller Institute or whatever, but I photographed myself as like a robot, very Vanessa Beecroft, like a okay. line of, yeah. of yeah. you know, these dudes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then one guy, was like sneaking into the Miller gallery and he discovered that he was cloned. Right. So I was like this, <laughs> I created this spy character That's so funny. <laughs> and I made this like leather suit, you know, I can sew. So I made this like leather suit yeah. and my good friend and classmate at undergrad, Christopher Carden Beekus, he, I asked, he's like really good at comic drawing, like illustration yeah. at the time. And so I asked him, could you like, turned me into a super cool spy guy with a costume and he made the costume. And so then I kind of made, or he drew the costume. So then I kind of made a costume that looked like it anyway. So I made that for my thesis show. And now I'm like super into spies. I'm like loving everything about spies. I thought it was a nice, you know, uh, metaphor for me observing my reality, spying on myself. I knew mm -hmm. I was gay, but I wasn't out yet. So I want to mm -hmm. like spy on myself and then I realized that the CIA, through my like research, my the CIA kind of pulled from Yale's Skull and Bones group. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Recruited. And so I was like, I need to make a brotherhood. I need to make the origin story for this spy. So then now the spy is being pulled from this brotherhood known as the Society of 23. Uh... So I graduated Carnegie Mellon and I moved to New York. I'm living in like Washington Heights and then Bushwick. Yeah. And while I'm living in Bushwick in 2008, I make the Society of 23 official. Wow. So what was the launching of it? A composite, which okay. is class pictures, right? Yeah, I yeah. just took pictures of myself and yeah, yeah. put them in this frame, you know, like the composite photos that you would see at any fraternity house. And so that, yeah, that was, that was it. And so, um, and then I went to grad school the next year. So I went into San Francisco Art Institute with this idea already, like in my head. Yeah. Um, so I kind of focused a lot of attention at grad school on the society of 23 mm. and that was, and so to this day, I am still focusing on that work. Yeah. I mean, it's great when you can keep mining things, right? I mean. It's so, so hard to keep restarting over and over again. What I like about that piece, though, is sure. like I like how you gave each one a name because I don't know if you've seen my work, but I also do multiples of myself, but I still haven't figured out what my multiples are. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, there's, they're these sort of like ambiguous different identities, but I liked how you actually created a name for each one. And so just, I mean, it made me think about my work, but also like it made me think about like different ways of, you know, handling this sort of multiplicity of bodies and identities. And so that's why I was like really excited to ask you about that, that particular piece. Yeah. The names um, is an interesting process. And what I'm learning about my process over the last you know 20 years is yeah. there's a lot of improv. There's a lot of random probability, but the names, it was a very simple act. You know, I was born in 1983 and mm -hmm. so I took the 22 most popular American boy names in 1983, 
plus my own name and put it in a bag. <laughs> then I took the 22 most popular boy names in 2008, mm-hmm. plus my middle name, put it in a bag, and then I just Mixed them matched up. them up. Yeah. Totally random, very jada. Um, and yeah. then yeah, yeah. <laughs> the names were born. I mean, you know, this is a very, very specific thing that my audience or new when people are new to my work they're very interested in the names they're like oh wow these names are how did you come up with it and i it's cool to for me as an artist that in my process this was not something that was like took years to develop this was like a very quick moment but this quick moment has affected everything (laughs) you know going forward then regret any of these quick moments or you love these moments no no, not at all. You know, the quick, I'll tell you some of the regrets or one, at least one regret for a quick moment is when I perform in front of the camera yeah. and it is not planned, yeah. which is half the time. Yeah. There's so much extra, there's so many extra photographs. There's so much extra yeah. time of recording yeah. that yeah. could have been saved if I didn't, or that wouldn't exist if I had just planned it yeah. better. So like kind of those quick things, like, well, I think it's quick. Well, you know, the consequences that, oh, I might have to reshoot um, something like that. But like, do you think, but then you know this. So I assume that for you, it's also (laughs) part of the process, right? Because for me, like, I know this, like I spend so much time editing my videos and part of it is like, I don't know what I'm doing half the time, but I, and I don't plan and I purposely put myself in this position so that something happens. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes I have all this like, unusable footage but like i always felt like if i planned it i would know what i'm doing and then that would i'm I, maybe i'm like afraid of knowing what i'm doing in art and i like not knowing mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. yeah but i assume like since you know you 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 yourself know this that like it's part of that process right no that's right i feel just right now like being in the middle of this residency i have i feel like i have placed so many things on my plate and I'm just like, okay, we're just going to go through. I'm just going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And so, for example, if like one light is wrong, the whole composition of the photo will look incorrect. Right. And like something like that, just it gets to me. Mm-hmm. And I wish I, I don't know. I just feel like I'm, that I put a lot of pressure on myself. Maybe this yeah. is the childhood ballet teacher telling me like to point my foot better. But <laughs> yeah, I just... Maybe that's part of it too, just being very hard on myself. But yeah, there's, you know, another quick moment, for example, is just at McConaughey Auditorium at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. I did my first 23 person photo shoot. And so I did this perfect grid. Yeah. I was like, okay, each brother can't, yeah, yeah. each brother needs to be in this square yeah, so yeah. that, you know, they're all in this room, yeah. but they're not covering each other. And I yeah. messed up on two brothers. Uh-huh. I messed up on... I overlapped it and I didn't know what a masking tool was yeah. or how to erase in Photoshop yet. Yeah, I was yeah. only slicing down the right, middle. Right, 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 right. When this accident happened, it changed my life. I realized that I could layer <laughs> these brothers on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. And so there are, you know, there are happy accidents too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think hopefully art is a whole bunch of happy accidents, you know. Um, yeah, right. I'm afraid of not having happy accidents. So I guess I guess moving on, I was curious, you know, so you said you're in Grand Rapids. Why Grand Rapids? I mean, I guess and the, the, question, the question that follows up is like, what do you think about living in a place that is not like 
San Francisco, LA, Chicago, New York, or whatever big name city. Right. Um, so I participated in an art competition called Art Prize uh-huh. with an artwork that I made in grad school. So in 2011, I read, I was following the blogosphere and learning about art opportunities. And there was this art competition in Grand Rapids and they were giving $500,000 away to the winner of this public vote. Like it was like the most cash money prize in the world for an art competition was happening in Grand Rapids, Michigan by a public vote. So it was like American Idol. That's like a lot Um, of money for art. It's a lot of money. (laughs) So I was living in San Francisco. Uh I had just finished grad school. And I applied to this show with one of my artworks called The Gay 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 Robe. And it's Uh um, very controversial. And it was going to... And I got in. So you have to apply. It's kind of like a little bit like um, online dating or matching. And why was this piece controversial? Oh, why was the piece controversial? Um, The work is, the gay, gay, gay robe is the ritual robe of the Society of 23. If you take it out of context from the Society of 23, it is a hooded robe figure that looks like a KKK robe that is made with rainbow print fabric. Mm -hmm. So just the symbol of that silhouette is shocking. Right. And then you combine it with kind of this representation of, you know, gay pride. So it's like very, there's a lot of mixed meaning interacting with each other. Especially devoid of context that can be tricky. Correct. So yeah, um, a, a church was a event. One church was a venue for this competition and they accepted my piece. And then they thought that because of the controversial nature of it, they would love to have me talk about it. So the church invited me to Grand Rapids. They flew me out to talk about the work at a panel discussion, which was great. And so that was my first intro to Grand Rapids. Um, Were you nervous about that talk? A little bit, a little bit. You know, I'm leaving the bubble of grad school. Yeah. Everyone knows your work, you know, even like acquaintances in your class, you don't really talk to, you know, it's fine. People get it. Yeah. Yeah. But now you're like going out into the world where no one knows anything about you. um, And you're trying to essentially defend a work of art as actual. (laughs) Having a, having a reason Um, to exist. Yeah. You know, it's just, and I was pretty confident. I was pretty cocky. (laughs) (laughs) for with my art i am with my art yeah so it was fine but yeah uh because of the experience at art prize i did it again the next year and then just paused a little bit and then did it again in 2014 and 15 or 2015 and then in 2016 i did another piece a video installation piece loved the experience with urban institute for contemporary arts which i am now on like a creative curatorial advisory committee i had such a great experience setting up that work and being in grand rapids for a period of time that i decided to move here Mm. it coincided with my job in san francisco was coming to an end i worked at an app i was an operations guy at an app okay and it was essentially ending the app you know we got purchased by someone else so you were coding no, I was the guy on the team that didn't code. I did <laughs> HR. I did office management. I'm the guy who didn't code. Okay. I made sure that you got all your benefits, you know, all that yeah. stuff. And it, it, San Francisco was great, but I was excited to move on. And, you know, I was, 
I tried to date, you know, bringing in personal love life. I mean, I was trying to date, but nothing ever stuck. So mm. I was just like, this isn't the city for me. It's too competitive. It's too gay competitive. Uh -huh. um, I can't find love. Uh -huh. So why don't I just move to Grand Rapids and figure it out? So I moved to Grand Rapids November 1st, 2016, a week before the presidential election. With no job planned to just move there. Um, I was beginning conversations with a local marketing and design agency, digital design agency, because of my background at my last job in San Francisco. Um, right, right. I could transition easily into another kind of design tech place. Yeah. And so I started interviewing while I was in San Francisco. But by the time I got to Grand Rapids, I had I think I had another interview or two, but yeah. I was starting to contract in December and then full time uh, a couple months later. Right when Trump gets elected, right? That's crazy. Right. Right. Well, yeah. So I stayed. I So I was in Grand Rapids and then a month later I met my now fiance. Oh, wow. <laughs> So I found love very quickly. Love in Grand Rapids. In Grand Rapids, two gay men found love in the Christian, the center of the <laughs> Christian Reformed Church. <laughs> wow. And are you going to get married? Uh, we always think about it. Yeah. There's no rush, but if we were, it would be for any you know, tax benefits, I guess. Yeah, yeah, are yeah. you married? No, no. Not yet. Okay. Not that I know of. Not yet. <laughs> Um, yeah, marriage is a funny thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess art prize has like sort of served you well over these years. Yeah. What is the art scene like there? So like there's all this prize money being thrown out. I mean, the first time I heard of Grand Rapids was I think I did a residency at Oxbow, right? Which is in Saugatuck, yes. Saugatuck Michigan. And that was a very, there's a few people from Grand Rapids who would go there as like teachers or, or, um, staff and so on and so that was the first time i heard of it but i don't know anything about the art scene there i'm also like curious why is there so much money being put out from this particular city in michigan yeah um let's see so the prize money is a lot because it was originally started by rick devos who is betsy devos's son that per that person. and they are billionaires yeah, yeah right yeah. so um it's a very controversial uh what's the word timeline or foundation. foundation. Yes. It's a very controversial foundation, which today art prize, well, our prize uh, was canceled last year. And now the entire staff has been fired. Most of the staff has been huh. let go and now they're restarting it. I don't know. It's very complicated okay. right now. Um, but originally all that money was coming from the DeVosses. Uh. Um, and then, you know, that's the interesting thing about the city is that, there's like two or three names everywhere, like on the performance hall, um, you know, mm. on the plaza here or whatever. Um, but Amway was started here. Okay. Do you know Amway? No, what is it? Um, Amway is its products that started as a pyramid scheme. So you would sell these products to people and then those people would sell those products to other people okay, and okay, it just okay. kept going, right? Um, Multi-level marketing, I think that's what it's called. It still, it still exists, doesn't it still exist? Amway still exists. I just don't understand if it's like still like operating in this structure. Because I think I saw a building of theirs recently in China. I think someone just mentioned Oh, yeah, that. yeah. And I was they like, definitely, oh, okay. they're international. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, okay. Um, All right. <laughs> but anyway, the families from Amway are the Van Andels and the DeVosses. Uh, and okay. so those two people who started it, now their families are like here and like spreading yeah. the, the word of 
God and money. Hmm. Um, but yes, so there's, um, you know, the DeVos performance hall, there's the Van Andel Arena. But it's interesting to think about it here where there's like this one billionaire who or like these two billionaires who are like controlling kind of the, the landscape of the city right? versus something like New York where there's so much of that money doing the same thing, right? Like Lincoln Center or yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, there's so many, yeah. there's all of that dark money somewhere. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do you, how do you as a, as an artist or as a creative person participate in something like that? How do you fit into that? I was making memes recently on my Instagram account and it's like, yeah, you see these donors on these museum websites and you're like, well, do I participate or not? It's hard. Like, do I want to, do I want to do that? So, you know, that's these choices, these small choices we make that have bigger impacts, but it, I just kept going with my interest in this art prize organization. And now it has led to me living here. It has led to me meeting my fiance. Yeah. So it's a very interesting story for me, but yeah. So anyway, they art price is a huge was a huge thing here in the city. That's where the money is. And so there's a lot of artists there. You know, actually, since joining the UICA's curatorial advisory committee, I feel like I've leveled up in terms of my network, which is really interesting. But um, essentially, my network has been a lot of my partners art scene, which is makers, you know, pottery artists and makers who participate in festivals and art fairs, which is a grind. You know, it's like we go to these festivals, we set up our booth and, you know, we sell his wares. We sell. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of what my experience with art has been. You know, I never sold anything. I don't sell my art. You know, this past March was my first time trying out a real opportunity to sell artwork in a gallery. And it worked. It was good. It was great. Um, What was the decision to not sell or you just didn't feel like it was important or, uh, yeah? You know, that's, it's a great question because I feel I think of my artwork as sellable you know i see as i consume what artwork is out in the world i'm like people as long as there's the right collector someone will buy your work but yeah yeah yeah. i think i think i um i always had a job i always had a full-time job and so i was getting a paycheck and so i didn't necessarily need to pay rent with with that painting i don't paint i don't know why i use the example um (laughs) with that thing over there that i'm gonna sell yeah 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 right yeah um but yeah so i i guess when i quit my full-time job in 2019 and then i was working for my partner for a little bit i started to understand like wow i need to make money in a different way yeah and um Mm -hmm. let me try to make something that's actually more viable to sell but the art scene here was or is for me primarily people who are selling their work themselves right, right. and so and that's what i observe as the uh, there are makers there are artists and makers here who are not trying to be internationally recognized or anything like that or yeah. nationally recognized but when i joined this committee and just and this is very recently like last month now I have this network of people who do have a CV like myself, um, who do apply for institutional support, you know, like 
my partner is not applying to uh, a grant from wherever, from creative capital or whatever, you know, he's not applying to those stuff. He's applying to get into a fair so that he can make his money at this, you know, three day festival. Um, So it was cool to like see other, to meet and be with other artists who, you know, they, they might teach at a local university or they might have taught in Chicago or they might have done several residencies. So I feel like I'm starting to like meet my people. Mm. Not that my partner's people are not my people, but we all have, we have different goals. Right, we have right. different like reasons. And just different communities, um, right? There's always say there's like right. many different art communities. It's not just like this one massive one where everyone's friends and knows each other. Right, right. So yeah, I'm I'm starting to meet those people. But, you know, because of the pandemic and just never leaving my house, I have made an online community of folks and they're all over the place. And so I'm while I'm physically in Grand Rapids, um, specifically this past year, I made a community of artists that are not in this city. So um, it's, it's um, interesting to think about my place. And this is through reaching out online. What, what, what was the means in which you created your community? Yeah, um, Instagram um, has been interesting. Reaching out to old acquaintances yeah. and developing more conversation over time. Yeah. You know, I made another meme on Instagram that was like, how many Zoom talks have you been to this year? And like this little girl's like, too fucking many, (laughs) you know, like I've been to so many artist talks online. And so just me, me being there for an acquaintance or a a friend has turned into conversations of like, you know, we catch up more. Um, We ask what's happening in the studio, Um, but everything's online now. So it's hard to even meet it's easier to meet online with someone than it is to go out in person in Grand Rapids and try to like, <laughs> what socially distance walk. I'm not going to do that. Like with someone here, I'll just FaceTime you. Yeah. But if I don't have a relationship with a friend in Grand Rapids yet, but I have a closer one with a friend who's in, you know, upstate New York, I'll talk to the upstate yeah. New York friend yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking of memes, I, so I was, I was actually talking to, Justin Favela today and he was like one thing that Justin wanted to ask you Jeffrey was like I wish I had asked more about your memes so he's like just ask Jeffrey why you know why you started your memes this this is sort of a question from Justin but yeah I mean I mean you've been doing them more recently on your Instagram and I was just if you wanted to talk a little bit about that oh my gosh thank you for that question Justin um (laughs) Justin phoning in. If you look at my, Justin phoning in. Um, if you look at my Instagram account, you'll see that there is like a chunk of maybe twenty or so cells that have just memes. Yeah. I was just like manic one week, and I just decided to like pump it out. Yeah. I think I was. I was just like so frustrated with all the professional development chores I had Mm, to do Mm -hmm. and maybe it was in preparation for my residency. Maybe it was application time. Maybe I was rejected from a couple things, but all of a sudden I had to, I had to look at it positively and lightly with my humor that I have. And I just started pumping them out and it was really fun. I love, Oh, and the only thing that kept me sane in, during the pandemic were memes, right? And it's like, this all sucks. Everything sucks. Let me find a little humor in the, 
tool yeah. iPhone that I'm looking at eight hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> and I started just making them myself and it was so fun. I have a font or a reservoir of things that I can draw upon. I feel like I'm at my computer all the time trying to develop my professional career. So I called back to now I have a PR person, right? It's yeah. like, I don't know what I'm trying to do other than get my artwork out there because my artwork is what it is. And I'm looking at Instagram and there are all these people getting like talking about their artwork and like, well, how do I get to talk about my artwork? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. anyway, so that's one example of professional development. I mean, there's so many areas of professional development for an artist yeah, um, mm -hmm. that I have touched and that I can joke about. <laughs> so the memes for me are just a nice little outlet to get yeah. my frustrations out because I think a lot of artists are in a similar boat. And yeah. again, here's like my mini community are the people who are at the same level with me right now. So I like that there are people who like understand that it sucks to work with an artist curator who curates themselves into the group show because they're not <laughs> responding to any of my questions because all they care about is their own artwork, right? Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in a similar boat or like, yeah, yeah like I'm with people who had got a modest honorarium from a museum show and like, yay, thank you, I guess, for the modest honorarium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when you got your mattress factory thing, did they tell you to be remote? Did, did they give you an option? How, um, how did that whole thing work out? Yeah, so um, I was accepted into the Mattress Factory residency in the summer of 2019. Okay, that's, um, like, that's but, a lot, lot of time before. Yeah, so we were going to plan my residency to be in August of 2020. And while planning the residency dates, the pandemic happened. And so everything was still unknown. Yeah. While we wanted to have a residency in August, it wasn't 100% sure. So then it got delayed. And then it got pushed a little, maybe November to finally, it's going to be January 2021. Hmm. So I was okay with that. And then I was like, well, do I want to travel? Yeah. And so I saw a really um, inspiring Facebook post by Stephanie Suko. Yeah, yeah. And she talked about professional development. She's like on another tier of She's, like, <laughs> here's what I'm doing in my life. Yeah, yeah. So it's like in Mortal Kombat with the three, the three pillars. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah, like yeah. on the baby pillar and she's like on the main pillar <laughs> up top. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> and so... She was like, I've made the decision not to travel for the next 12 months. Yeah. I'm not going to work with institutions that require me to be there, blah, blah, yeah. blah, all this stuff. Because she's a person of color that's getting affected by COVID more than others. She's the, she makes money that uh, she can't like get sick. So I feel the same way. And so I decided, and there's so much stress trying to figure out how are you going to not survive, but just like live your daily life in a residency, yeah. not at home planning for that yeah. in the months ahead was so much stress and anxiety that when I finally saw Stephanie's post, I was like, this makes sense to me. I'm resonating with it. Yeah. I am committing right now not to go because yeah. I cannot continue planning this unknown. I just need to move on and live my life. Yeah. Um, so I decided probably, when did I decide? Maybe August or September that I was going to be remote. Uh, for the residency and the staff was like totally cool with it they loved it there was no issue at least that they're telling me and 
yeah, and here we are, sixth, seventh day of residency. So what is your plan going to be? Well, let's see. I mean, this, so the parameters of my self-inflicted plan is that, well, no, it's not. The residency is to work toward, for me, the Mattress Factory residency is to work towards an installation that is then exhibited within the museum for a couple months or however yeah. long, right? Yeah. So there's already that structure. Some people have taken the Mattress Factory residency to be, you know, a couple weeks. Others have done a couple months. I think one artist this last cycle, she came in March, the pandemic shut down everything and she yeah. actually sheltered in place at the Mattress Factory's residency. Oh wow, okay. So that's kind of cool. I mean, that's a little like unexpected, yeah, yeah. but if yeah, she yeah. has the what is it? Like vagabond lifestyle, like why not? Like yeah, go yeah, yeah. live at go live at the residency. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um you don't have to pay anything. So for me, I for my okay. So for my one work that I did at Urban Institute for Contemporary Arts for that one art prize show, I had made the video installation I had made the video component of the video installation in San Francisco. Uh -huh. And then it was projected into the space in Grand Rapids. Okay. I also went to Grand Rapids to actually set up the physical installation itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For Mattress Factory, now that I have that skill set from UICA, for Mattress Factory, I am creating the video component of the video installation here in Grand Rapids. But I am also now giving instructions to the exhibitions team mm on how to set everything up. Yeah. So it's very conceptual with some parts, but it's also very contractory interior design, like renovation Yeah. <laughs> on other parts. You know, I'm like, for example, right, you know, I have all this foil curtain in my basement in Grand Rapids. I purchased the same foil curtain to ship to Pittsburgh, which yeah. they will line the room with. And so in Grand Rapids, I am creating a reality show uh, of the brothers within the installation. But there is an illusion that the brothers are in the installation in right, Pittsburgh. Right, 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 right. So there's like that and stuff. And then um, also I am purchasing a lot of items, which then will be shipped to me here in Grand Rapids. And I'm using them within the video. I'm photographing myself with them, for example, like a trophy or um, a hat that I wear. If those items need to be in the installation, I will then ship them yeah, to Pittsburgh. I see, I see, I see. yeah. In yeah. about two weeks. And hopefully people can see so, it, right? Yeah, that's the other question, right? Like there'll be this digital component, which is the video itself, which should only be physically seen in the installation. But if necessary, that video could be put online. Yeah. We could watch the video online. There could be some documentation of the installation through video or yeah, photography yeah. Mm -hmm. that we could then put on a website. So it's it's hard. It's it's you know even planning the installation itself. I had my ideas. I knew exactly what I was going yeah. to do. Yeah. You know, the end of 2019, I was like, okay, my residency is in summer of 2020. I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. It's going to be about competition because the Olympics are happening. <laughs> it's going to be about politics because the presidential election is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here we are. The Olympics got postponed. The election's a nightmare. You know, like, yeah. 
it's been interesting for me with my process in terms of how I respond to current events, how I have to plan for current events. That's funny. Planning for current events sounds a little bit like a crystal ball or something, <laughs> um, which I think artists do. That's a whole other topic. But yeah, my installation was going to be about a lot of stuff relating to what was happening in right. 2020. Right, right. And here we are now. The installation is more 2021. Yeah. Um, but still relating to what's but happening. But it's okay because the yeah, it, it's still relating. <laughs> it's always, I think that's the cool yeah. thing about art is that it will always relate somehow. It's just yeah. for me and my extreme need for control. I'm like, is it relating to the thing that I want it to? Yeah. Um, but that's the, I think that's the pleasure of layering things is that you don't know what layers people will ultimately yeah. look at. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that's, that's more of the intellectual pleasure there. It's like, okay, well, we'll find threads. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's like, you know, I guess good work has multiple layers, right? You know, there's like the right. initial aesthetic, there's the deeper layer and depending how things are intersected and connected, you know, many different interesting things can happen. Um, I'm trying to think, right. I mean, oh, one thing I did want to say is I, I found another interesting link. Your I saw on your website your piece "Tropical Realness" with the um... spray paint plants. I know I saw that on your site too. I'm sorry, I copied you specifically. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, I guess it's funny. the The thing about I never feared that. I don't know how you felt about this, but I never feared copying in the sense that, like, I felt my stuff tended to be so personal and drew from such specific elements that, like. I guess you could copy some aesthetic part, but like that's also missing a whole part of it that I'm okay if that one part was copied. Whereas like, you know, I've been to art, I've been to like art fairs where like the artists, you know, whose work exists in an art fair, which is also like another thing why I never at the moment felt like selling. Cause every time I go to an art fair, I'm like, my work doesn't belong here, but like, but I've met like other artists who whose work does, and they complain. Some have complained about how other artists copy them, and their work, you know, exists kind of as this aesthetic thing and nothing else. And so the copying becomes even more problematic, or you know, a difficult thorny issue. Right. I I was definitely personal with mine as well. And so what's interesting, I love that you know aesthetically they are very similar, but to learn about the ideas behind your work is just so, it's just so, it's fabulous. What's the word I'm trying to say? It's like a different area than mine. I think we're coming from shared, shared experiences, but the specificity of yours, especially, you know, with the color name and things like that, I have a different, we, we came, mm, what am I trying to say? We're arriving at something similar from coming from yeah. similar places. Yeah, yeah. So it shouldn't be a surprise that there are these two existing works of art that look similar. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it also feels different. And yeah, it was, it was something that I was like, I was just, yeah, as I was going through, you know, your website, I was like, ah, oh, there's so many similarities. It was sort of, you know, amazing to kind of read through it. Mine's like the fun high school party version and yours is like the Beyonce entrance version. Oh. <laughs> like if Beyonce you, getting on stage and the spotlights like are on her and like the crowd is cheering. And she's just really like bashful standing being there with her wig. There you go. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think, is there anything else you want to talk about that I missed? You know, I was thinking this morning a little bit about the video component of my installation. And I know we didn't get into it much, but, you know, there's going to be the reality show itself plus subtitles. And so there's no audio in the reality show, but it is going to be subtitled, but the subtitles don't match with the audio that's actually said. The subtitles are going to be text from the U.S. Constitution. Okay. And I just thought it was interesting when I was thinking about it and the title of your podcast, because I was thinking about how, or I have been thinking about for the last several months, you know, the U.S. Constitution is just like a bunch of white dudes who wrote this thing. And here I am trying to take that language and, you know, match it with something and just how even in in your prompt, it's just like, you know, a non-white person speaking can be political in itself. And Mm -hmm. I feel like what, what happens if I have this reality show where it looks like these people of color are saying this text, like what happens to that text that was really written by like racist white dudes, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I'm excited to see what happens through that layering of meaning and what the audience will take away from them. Yeah. I mean, I really hope it goes through well. I mean, I had, I had a show that was in New York and it, it felt like it didn't happen. I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really hope that yours, I'm excited to see it if it is available online. When is it opening actually? Um, there's a date of February 26th. Oh, okay. That's soon. That's soon. Yeah. And the pandemic's like totally not over. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the museum's still closed actually. So we'll see, but it should be up through the fall. Okay. So Hopefully people might have like a couple months to see it later this year if it doesn't open on the 26th. Yeah, I'll tell I'll tell people in Pittsburgh to go see it and everyone on this podcast. Yeah. Um, awesome. Where can um, people find you online? Um, my website is songco.org, S-O-N-G-C-O dot org. And then my Instagram is Songco Arts. All right. So yeah, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, thanks for chatting with me. Thank you, Steven. All right. Take it easy. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.